welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Lila B, Cheryl Yonotti Foland. Having grown up on the east coast of the United States, once self-described high-strung, type-A, fast-talking New Yorker Cheryl Yonotti Foland spent the first 20 years of her working life in private equity. Cheryl describes her attitude towards work, life and beauty during that time as more, more, more. But a move to California for work in 2006 saw the maximalist trade in her New York lifestyle for something a little slower. Cheryl tells me that the life she'd been living was not the healthiest and recognised that her need for the next best beauty product was really more of a want, in turn identifying what she describes as a white space in the market for a brand that truly simplified beauty. And so Lila B was born, a clean, luxe colour cosmetics brand in which each product has been formulated to have multiple uses, meaning that consumers can create a complete, polished look with minimal products. As Cheryl tells me, three is all you need. More or less on launch, Lila B was picked up by both Barney's and Net-A-Porter, meaning that the brand was being sold and marketed in upwards of 170 countries within five months. Today, Lila B remains one of the world's most coveted clean beauty brands, with Cheryl watching women and men across the globe adopting her less is more ethos, having succeeded in her mission to make beauty simple again. This episode was recorded remotely, myself in Melbourne and Cheryl in California, so if you would prefer to read the interview, I have made the complete transcript available on glowjournal.com. In this conversation, Cheryl and I discuss the surprising influence Tiffany & Co designer Elsa Peretti had on her brand, how increasing consumer demand for authenticity is rapidly changing the beauty industry, and why we all have a Rhodesian Ridgeback to thank for the Lila B brand. You grew up on the East Coast and you have described yourself, this is a direct quote, you've described yourself as crazy, high-strung, oldest child, overachiever, type A, fast-talking New Yorker. But I would like to go back to the very beginning of that oldest child's life, what is your very earliest memory of beauty? Oh, um, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, growing up, I was quite a tomboy and mm-hmm. um, I was a competitive swimmer um, all the way through school, actually, all the way through university. And um, so, you know, my, my biggest desire in terms of beauty was always to make sure that I took care of my hair well enough so that the chlorine didn't turn it green. Of course. So, so it was always all about these special treatment shampoos so that my hair didn't look green. Um, but outside of that, um, we didn't really wear a lot of makeup uh, early, myself, my sister, um, when we were young. But I do remember having every flavor of the Bonnie Bell lip smackers. Now I'm going to completely completely give away my age, but um, I collected every single one of them. Um, I think strawberry was my flavor, but that, you know, to me that was, that was beauty. Um, And then, you know, my, my mom loved fine fragrances. And so I always loved uh, smelling her, smelling her on me after she would give me a hug or I sat next to her. Um, so at a young age, we, um, we would wear either her fine fragrance or as a kid, um, I used to love Ani Sunny's, mm-hmm. um, which I don't iconic. even know if it's still around, but iconic. I think that it is. I think it is too. I think it is too. So, you know, really giving away my age, but letting you know just how simple beauty was for me as a kid, which was, you know, tomboy, uh, you know, uh, type A student, um, and then just throw that lip smacker on. And and that's about all I ever did. So um, yeah, so beauty was not in my head back then at all. The Bonnie Bell lip smackers point has actually not given away a single thing because I had a pencil case full of them. I would always be 
you know, struggling to find a pen to take notes, but I had every flavour of those lip smackers in my pencil case. No one is surprised that this is where I've ended up. I remember every year for Christmas, I'd, they'd be in my stocking, you know, a collection of five different new flavours. Amazing. Um, yeah. Now, I understand that prior to working in beauty, you had a career in finance, but when you were younger, when you were that tomboy, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? You know, I think that I had grandiose dreams of, I loved interior design. I loved rearranging furniture in the house with my mom. Um, I love animals. I love dogs. I thought maybe I'd be a vet. And I think that all of these ideas were, in my mind, not necessarily possible. Um, Being the oldest child, um, it was, you know, it was impressed upon me to think responsibly and to think about what you really can have a solid career in. And I'm not necessarily sure that becoming an interior decorator or a designer um, would have actually um, gone over real well, um, at least not with the firstborn. Um, so, you know, being born to a nurse and a, and a lawyer, um, I wasn't going to be either. Um, so I went the next best route and I went to school for business and ended up in finance. Um, and I guess, I guess I was decent at numbers, uh, when, as a kid. So that was the, that was the choice that I, that I made, but, uh, I, uh, even still to this day, I love design. So, um, and I think a little bit of that creativity comes out obviously, uh, with my brand. So in mm-hmm. some ways I, I've, uh, ultimately as an adult gotten there, uh, in terms of my design dream. I think that's so often the case with people that are in the creative industries that your skills can kind of apply to a number of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. I agree. Which is a blessing. I agree. So you spent upwards of 20 years working in finance and more specifically in private equity and around half of that time was actually working in the prestige and mass beauty space. Now I have a couple of questions about this time. Firstly, were there any lessons that you picked up during that very early part of your career in finance that you find you're still applying to your work now? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that I learned a lot about discipline and attention mm-hmm. to detail. Um, you know, it was very much a structured environment. I think that everything I do today and even along the way in my career, I think just the core foundation of the understanding of finance, business, how things run, um, and the analytics around it has really helped to um, – help me to shape exactly what I'm doing today. Um, but I do really truly believe that it was the journey along the way in the various individual experiences um, that I've taken from each and every one of them uh, that gave me the confidence, obviously, to go out there and launch my own brand and, and uh, take a step towards entrepreneurship. Um, so yeah, it was a great foundation, a great start. I wouldn't trade it in for the world. Secondly, while we're talking about that time, can you talk me through your role at Arcade Marketing? Because I thought this was so interesting and I think it's interesting for consumers to hear about that side of beauty, the sampling and so forth that goes on before the products actually land on the shelves. They don't just magically appear as it turns out. No, they don't. Um, So Arcade was a a very interesting part of my um, journey. Um, It was probably about, I guess, 10 to 12 years into um, my career within uh, the private equity sector. And as part of this team, um, we had identified Arcade Marketing and this business as uh, a company to purchase or acquire. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was tasked with was really um, looking at areas to grow the business, um, different customers, um, different brands. And um, Arcade primarily is focused on, uh, and they're still, they're still around today. Actually, they're, um, they're very much in need today with the limitations Mm. around testers and how customers are going to see, feel and touch and experience a product. Um, Obviously having samples to do so right now, 
during this time is, is very important. Um, but Arcade provides sampling solutions to the industry. Um, and so every category from fragrance to hair care to color cosmetics to skincare, um, you know, there's a very um, uh, strong understanding that once you get a trial use of a product into the hands of the consumer, that they have the opportunity to try before they buy and that the conversion and the return on a brand's investment to spend their marketing dollars on sampling um, is a home run. And so at Arcade, um, I obviously, I started uh, in Manhattan um, because I was from the East Coast. I lived in the East Coast. I lived in New York and I had no intention on ever leaving. Uh, and, and so when I started uh, with Arcade, we were focusing on, on all the big brands um, in, in New York. And um, obviously taking the business from what was predominantly sampling of fragrances. So those scent strips in magazines that yes. you peel back and you can experience your fragrance or cologne. Um, so it, we, we expanded from fragrance into obviously color, cosmetic sampling, skincare, and what have you. And uh, it's brilliant. It's just, you know, you have to understand the cost of it and you have to understand that the return on your investment is could be tremendous, but it's uh, it's launching a product at the same time that you are offering a sample, uh, and then how do you actually execute that sample? Do you put it into a magazine? Do you have it in a shopping cart as a smart sample with some of your retailers? Um, you know, gifts with purchase at retail counters or in store. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's brilliant. I had a lot of fun. I met incredible people. And to be honest with you, if I hadn't had this sort of stint um, of almost nine years with Arcade, I would have never, ever been introduced to the beauty industry. I would have never become so passionate about it. And, uh, and I would have never launched the brand. And as you can imagine, we sample a lot mm. because I learned a lot. And, uh, and Lila B has a ton of samples. And what was your personal approach to beauty like during that particular time? What is the definition of that fast talker New Yorker beauty ethos? So, uh, very interesting from then until now, for sure. Um, and a lot, a lot of, uh, who I was, um, that beauty, um, consumer from back then until today. So we're talking 2004, 2005 until today, um, was a completely different consumer, um, you know, than, than who I am today. The evolution of who I have become in terms of um, that beauty consumer is, um, is really what the brand is all about. It is a very different philosophy of how um, your mindset works when it comes to how much product do you need, how much product do you really want uh, to use. And so back in New York, obviously, I was that frivolous crazy, chaotic, had to have the next hottest new product, probably ended up 90% of the product in my vanity was never used more than once. Mm -hmm. That was sort of who I, I, I was back then. Um, and I definitely fussed a lot more, wore a lot more makeup, um, fussed with my hair more. Everything was about more, more, more. And um, when I transferred out to California uh, with Arcade, um, I, I learned a new way of life. It was simpler. It was easier. It was minimalistic. And I don't know that I would have ever really transformed had I not had this complete cultural difference out here. You know, just the way people were. Um, it was the better work-life balance. It was, everything was just simple and easy. And so obviously with that came this different mindset of, I don't need all that makeup. I don't need all those clothes. Um, and so that evolution really led to the brand, but the ethos of that fast talking New Yorker, gosh, has it changed? It's uh, it's complete transformation. 
you've mentioned that you moved to California with Arcade and the intention was to only stay short term, but something like 14 years later and you're still on the West Coast. I was going to ask what was it about California that you loved and clearly still love so much, but I, I imagine it's got a lot to do with that slower lifestyle. Yeah, and I have to be completely honest with you. When I when I first came out here, I signed up for a two year project, and I thought um, I'll never leave New York. You know, I I'll, I'll never absolutely I won't f- end up fitting in here. Um, this is too slow for me. Um, and so, yes, two years in, I started to fit in. Uh, and at first, I was this crazy, fast talking fish out of water. Um, you know, it was very hard from a business perspective because I still was very New York, um, both good and bad. Um, and uh, and I and I really recognized that, you know, the life I was living was not very healthy, and um, in more ways than one. You know, just the pace, um, everything that came along with it, um, and. Out here, I felt healthier, I felt lighter, I felt happier, um, and a lot of it had to do with a, a more pared down, less is more approach to everything in my life. So um, yeah, I, I, I became addicted to the lifestyle out here, uh, adopted this newfound philosophy of simple and minimalistic, and, uh, and here I am. I fell in love with California in and of itself, and then a few years in, I fell in love with my husband, and there was no reason to leave. <laughs> so you had quite a big lifestyle change. Obviously, your approach to beauty changed over that time as well. At what point did you start to identify a gap in the beauty market and perhaps just become a bit disillusioned with the industry as it stood at the time? So um, I think it was a combination of a lot of things throughout the way, through the, through the way. Um, you know, when I was first out of school, um, Bobby Brown was my girl. Oh, you know, heaven. Uh, she made it simple. She made it easy. She clearly didn't have the thousands of SKUs that she has today, but uh, it was very simple. Um, and it was, it was for my mom. It was for me. It was for my sister. We're all different skin types, tones, ages. And, um, and I missed that even along the way through my years of frivolous spending and being that crazy beauty consumer, um, I missed the simplicity of it all. And I had never from then until I began to think of the development of what kind of brand I wanted to create, I had never really come across a brand that made things so simple uh, and easy and elegant and sophisticated and really just truly timeless. Um, Along the way, obviously, with Arcade's business and growing that business with them, um, it became a very fruitful career because all of these brands had multiple launches. And this obviously, their launches were more business for me, and it was just a wonderful almost decade. But during that time, obviously, all of this incredible success also was a a true eye-opener to me that consumers are just pushed all of this product and is it necessary? Do they need it? Is it just confusing and cluttering the world of color cosmetics in particular even more? Mm. So it was sort of, can I create something with so many different touch points that I had to hit, but can I can I bring things back to basics? Sort of like Bobby Brown, making things simple again, making beauty simple again. Um, And uh, and then obviously everything else that goes into it and all the different touch points I wanted to hit. But it it really truly was just an evolution and the learnings, particularly my years at Arcade. So you're starting to look at the market. You're thinking about all of these things. You realize you want to simplify it. Do you recall any one specific moment in which you thought, okay, that's it. I need to start this brand. Uh, yes. So it was, uh, it was really a, a, a career decision. Um, we were, uh, we were about ready to put arcade up for sale. Mm-hmm. And um, so my, uh, the, the crossroad that I hit at that time was um, what I stay would I go back to New York? 
Um, and, and what have you learned and what is this little fire in your belly that you've been kind of spinning about? Um, and so it was sort of, I'm not sure that had I hit that crossroad that I would have pulled the trigger as quickly as I did, but I was always thinking, you know, throughout the, the last three to five years, um, I was always thinking about that one brand, that white space. And, um, and there were a lot of things that I felt this white space um, uh, that, that I can complete. Um, and so it was more along the lines of what do I want to do next? And having this sort of aha moment of what it would look and feel like. And then that excited me. Um, I do think that along the way, working with the big, big conglomerates in New York and sitting around the table with all of these incredible chief marketing officers and creating wonderful launch strategies with their samples um, was very different than moving out to California and sitting around the table with the most amazing, inspiring, passionate, soulful founders. And so, um, they were inspiring. They, they really excited me. And, um, and I'm not really sure that I would have had the nerve to give up my 21 year career and say, let's go for it. Unless I saw just how happy and passionate they were and uh, what they were getting out of the creation of their brands. So probably a combination of, of all of the above. I mean, that's why I do this. Talking to founders is very exciting. <laughs> No one has this level of passion because it's it's yours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where to from there? I understand that Lila B spent something like 18 months in development. Can you talk me through that period? Sure. Um, so that period was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that development, while fun and exciting, is a lot of work and um, I'm all about sort of the end result. So it's, it's really seeing the, um, the, the package, um, of what you've created, um, at the end of the day, that was just incredible. Um, but 18 months included, you know, meeting with and sort of interviewing, if you will, um, various different labs and packaging suppliers and you name it. Um, it was, it was a, a very interesting, uh, road I think that, um, you know, when you're talking about six and a half years ago now, um, there's not a lot of labs that'll pay attention to you when you're little itty bitty Mm. tiny. Um, So you don't have all of the options that a lot of, you know, the larger brands do with big budgets and big distribution. And so starting off as an indie brand, I know I'm not the only one that would say this. Um, I think that's the number one challenge. Um, and, uh, I, I found the most incredible, uh, labs and suppliers early on that supported me because they believed in the philosophy of my brand and, and what I was creating. And I also had met a lot of people along the way, um, while I was at Arcade. So I had developed, you know, relationships and I had credibility, um, in the industry that people already might've known who I was. Um, and would love to work with me. So I feel very, very fortunate that a lot of them took a chance on me. Um, but 18 months, it was, you know, creating my package, creating the formulas of every single product. Um, we launched with a very, very small curated line. Um, and so it was, at that point, it was only 11 SKUs. So it was very tight. But our whole philosophy was along the lines of keeping things simple. So it was really the first a uh, profound introduction to a really simple collection that can still give you, you know, a complete finished look. I imagine part of the, um, the the difficulty as well is because you have such an emphasis on these beautiful botanical ingredients. And then when you start going to chemists and formulators and you tell them this is the sort of line of ingredients that we want a hero, they put it in the too hard basket and say, okay, well, here are some much cheaper alternatives that are far easier to work with. Yes. Yes. And I think that, you know, one of my biggest challenges is I don't have a chemistry background at all. And on the beauty side of the business, I was more on the marketing Mm. uh, or product development side of the business. And that's where I played. So, um, so I didn't have that lingo. Um, I knew what I wanted to be 
in and out of my product formulations. Uh, when I started to develop the brand six and a half years ago, um, the U.S. really didn't have a lot of labs that were as innovative and, and forward thinking as the EU. Um, as I think we all know, um, as clean beauty becomes even more important to consumers, beauty consumers and the new norm, um, the, the EU regulations and restrictions are so much greater. Banned ingredients there are huge compared to what we practice here in the US. And so for me, knowing that clean beauty healthy beauty was not only important to me, but would obviously be the new norm at some point, which we're seeing in a big way today. Um, I decided to work with labs in Italy, um, in Milan, and I work with three different labs in Milan, and um, because I felt like they were already, they had so many banned ingredients, they already were so far ahead of the curve. And then I really just had to give them my inspiration. Um, you know, wanting everything to be not only healthy, clean, but high performance um, without compromising anything, longevity, efficacy. Um, and, and then I obviously had to put a twist into it all and tell them that I wanted every product to do two, three, or four different things. Mm. <laughs> so I challenged them long and hard, but, uh, but I think they're grateful because obviously we've all grown and learned during the process so worth challenging them just based on the products we get to use now. An element that I never really spend a ton of time on in these conversations is the packaging because, you know, packaging's packaging. But in the case of Lila B, the packaging deserves a moment. I imagine most people listening to this will have experienced it. But, oh, my goodness, I've never come across anything like it. What were your prerequisites and how did you go about creating something that is so luxe? Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, a lot, I think a lot of what, what went into the brand were things that I truly felt was missing for me as a, uh, prestige beauty consumer. Um, there are a couple things. Number one, um, I know that I spent a lot of money on beauty products that, after bumbling around in the bottom of my bag or my makeup kit um, for a week or a couple of weeks would look horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they break, they'd crack, they would look horrible. And uh, they were luxury, beautiful brands that um, you spent a lot of money on. And so the first sort of item that I checked off my list was the packaging has got to look and feel luxe. If I'm going to claim this brand, it's going to be a luxury brand. And I wanted the product to last and I wanted it to feel fabulous. Um, so first and foremost, that's what I focused on. I wasn't going to do anything, uh, develop something in plastics or anything that wasn't durable. Um, so I started thinking about what that would, would be. Um, I also, growing up in New York um, in the 80s and 90s, they were... Um, it was Tiffany and company, um, their uh, designer, Elsa Peretti, yes. was so popular. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved every piece that she designed. And, and I tried to collect as much as I could. Um, every birthday or Christmas, um, I would ask for another piece of hers, whether it was jewelry or paperweight. Um, and everything about her designs uh, made me happy. Um, organic, sensual, free-flowing, just feels so fabulous in your hand, even when you're playing with a necklace of hers. Um, so I thought about her when I was thinking of organic shapes and designs, and um, I didn't want hard edges or hard corners. So um, we custom designed a, um, a component that looks and feels like a pebble. Um, we have a small and a large, so I guess you'd say a stone and a pebble, um, and it, it feels hefty and substantial. It feels like this incredible sensory experience um, uh, when you touch and feel it. And uh, it really is in line with, with the inspiration from, from Elsa Peretti. Uh, but yes, thank you. I'm, I'm 
I love, I love our packaging and um, we get so much incredible feedback, especially the durability and the fact that you could just wipe it down. It looks fabulous months from when you bought it. Um, so yes, thanks. I just love that you've used the phrase sensory experience because it, if you've not experienced it, it sounds mad, but I will sit there with the products in my hand just without even realizing, sort of just transferring them from hand to hand, flipping them open and shut. They're, oh, they're incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Another element of the brand that has a little bit of a story that I love is the name. Tell us, who is Lila B named after? It's so funny because every single uh, interview or if I'm in store with customers or um, or, or, or sales staff, uh, everyone thinks Lila must be my daughter. Sure. Um, because my name is Cheryl and mm-hmm. I didn't name it Cheryl. Um, and I guess she sort of kind of was my daughter. <laughs> um, Lila was my uh, Rhodesian Ridgeback, uh, my dog. And uh, Lila was a huge, huge part of my healthier, uh, newfound life here in California. Very soon after I, I came to California, um, I got Lila and, uh, she was part of, you know, daily runs and hikes and being outdoors and really forced me to focus on other things and have a a better balance. It was always just worried about myself, uh, and work, work, work. Um, and so she was part of that transformation. Um, Unfortunately, she passed away last summer um, at 10 and a half years old, but she was, um, she's still a a part of the brand that will live on forever. And uh, yeah, that's who Lila is. I just, I love that. I think you are the only brand founder I've ever spoken to who has a company named after their dog. And I love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you launched in 2015. I read that when you first told your husband that you had plans to launch a brand where the brand goal was to encourage women to pair back their beauty routines. He was a bit sceptical and didn't quite understand how that could work as a business model. I understand that that would be very confusing to some people. His response aside, what was public reception on launch? So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of this interesting backwards mindset, right? It was Mm. sort of what I was trying to achieve all along is let's make beauty simple again. I think from a business perspective, my husband had a right to be shocked. I said, I want to, I want to launch a brand that's going to encourage women to buy less, not more product. And I'm not really sure how that makes money or (laughs) is a true model of a business, but I get where he was coming from. Mm I was thinking more along the lines of this just newfound mindset and what was so needed in the industry. And so when consumers, customers, um, people out in the industry learn about our philosophy and understand that because every single product is so multitasking and that you really truly only need a few products, I'm really teaching them to be mindful and thoughtful of their purchases, to declutter, to simplify. And I really think that everyone wants to do that. Mm. I just don't know that they know how. So um, the response has been incredible. Um, As they learn more about the brand, they become more in tune to what the philosophy is all about. And I I don't think there's anyone out there as fabulous as we all want to look. We all want it want it to be easy. Who Mm. wants to take a makeup artist home with you to apply 50 products? Um, So yeah, so the response has been fantastic. More so now than even at launch, because I just think it's this overwhelming change Mm. of uh, mindset. You want cleaner ingredients. You want to know what you're wearing and and why you're buying it. And are you going to use it? Uh, Much more mindful about how you're how you're purchasing these days. I was thinking about that as well because that's something that's come up quite a bit recently is that now just based on everything that's going on in the world, people are so much more considered in their purchases. They want to know, okay, I'm spending this amount of money. I want to make sure this is a brand that is aligned with the way that I'm looking at the world. Yes, Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's so many things. Um, I think people have a lot more time to take a step back and Mm. say, you know, 
look at this drawer full of beauty products. And I think it goes for everything. The shoes in your closet. I can't tell you the last time I put a pair of heels on. Um, but it's the, it's the clothes in your closet. It's the food that you buy. It's the food that's sitting in your refrigerator that now you might see multiple times a day because you're going in and out of it. Whereas if you're traveling all the time and you just don't pay attention to those things. So I think it's, uh, I think there are beauty consumers today are very uh, thoughtful and focused in particular, particularly now when a lot of people are home, what are they really using? What do they really need? Because there's a big difference between what you buy and what you truly need. Um, But yes, you've seen this, this uh, very interesting shift particularly over the past couple of months um, in, in the mindsets. Which products did you launch with? I think you mentioned there were 11. Were there any that are, you know, the real heroes? Um, yeah, our divine duo. Actually, there's, mm. two, there's two heroes from, from the original collection. Um, our split pan bronzer, yes. which continues to be like one of our, our best sellers. Um, that is not surprising it, because it is a stunning, stunning product. Thank you. And it's, uh, you know, it's a major multitasker. It's your highlighter. You can contour. You can have a beautiful sun-kissed glow. It's not that muddy, flat bronze. It actually looks like you were kissed by the sun, so just super natural and and bright and glowy. Um, and then our Divine Duo, mm. um, it's, a, it's a lip and cheek product, and a lot of the shades can actually be worn as a creamy eyeshadow. So three-in-one product. Um, super creamy, um, formulated with aloe and agar, sea algae. So, so it's really super hydrating and nourishing. Um, kind of hard to make sure you nail every single task, which is the, ch- the challenge I've given to my lab over and over. Um, but, you know, h- how often can you actually put a beautiful pigmented, bold uh, lip color on your cheek and have it blend um, the way you'd like it to? Uh, rather than just a stain that doesn't move, so it's uh, it actually it's uh, it's one of our it's our one of our biggest heroes. Well, I'm glad you've said that because I wanted to ask you about this because you, without realizing, you actually forced me to eat my words a couple of years ago, which is not something I do often. When I first reviewed your products, because I had said for such a long time that with multitaskers they are rarely high performing in both of their tasks, if you will, like you'll get a lip to cheek tint. It might look beautiful on the cheeks and feel awful on the lips or vice versa. And then I tried the divine duo and I had to, I had to go back on everything I had said. I didn't understand how a product could be so high performing across the board. So a broad question, but how, how do you do it? Um, well, Listen, there's two things. Number one, I've bought multitaskers in the past and they've only been able to perform in one way, yep. right? And we've been disappointed in, in, in the other claims. Um, I was never, ever going to claim anything with my entire line that I didn't stand behind mm. um, as, a, as a beauty user consumer myself. So um, yes, it was very challenging and it continues to be challenging as we as we work through product development and new innovation to make sure that every product is a multitasker. Um, I, I said that I was going to encourage women to, to have to purchase less product. Well, then they, they've got to have two or three different products in one. Um, and I also think that early on, um, our less is more philosophy really turned into um, talking to customers, consumers, Lila B fans about the, the idea of three is all you need. Mm-hmm. Three products, three Lila B products, you have a bag full of makeup. And in order to do that, then they really truly have to be able to do so many different mm-hmm. things um, and achieve a beautiful finished look because three products really seems a little bit light. Uh, but not if there's two or three different products in each one and that they perform to perfection uh, with every task. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very challenging. Um, we launched a couple of new new products earlier this year where you know we were launching them with two tasks, and all of a sudden, you know, on my morning run, I said, "Well, why can't it do this as well?" <laughs> and we'd go back to the drawing board to add the third task. So um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Pack it all in. I would love to hear more about that product development process. How long does it take from 
the conceptualization of a new product through to it being available for consumers to purchase? Um, I'd say at a minimum, if you're fast tracking something, which we try not to do anymore, we did early on, um, I'd say it's probably nine months, mm-hmm. um, I think, to give yourself enough time um, to really nail something to perfection, because you'll have lots of various different submissions and options to make. I'd say it's a good 12 to 18 months. So you're probably working on a, a pipeline of several different launches ahead of you, um, at least a year to a year and a half out. As far as coming up with these new products goes, are you constantly thinking about what is going to come next or do you prefer to work based on demand or a bit of both? I think that's a great question. I think it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, there's obviously been categories in the line that uh, we had some holes where we were missing. Um, so I would gravitate towards creating something that would fill that hole, whether it was an eye product or um, we, we launched a beautiful uh, tinted lip oil mm-hmm. uh, last year and we didn't have anything that really had that beautiful glossy treatment feel. So that was, that was sort of a hole in the collection. So I think about what the collection looks like as a whole what I think we are missing. Um, but I also get very um, interesting feedback from either my field sales team or customers in general. Um, and then we're always looking at obviously what is trending, um, but really trying to stay true to who we are. Because at the end of the day, I know I've mentioned Bobby Brown, but um, my desire is to have created a brand that is timeless and ageless. And so there's nothing in my line that I hope 10 years from now or 20 years from now, you think, you know, I mean, look, Bonnie Bell, Lip Smacker. Well, I was about to say, it's funny that you've launched a lip oil that has that gloss finish on the lips. You've taken it back to day one. I sure have. I sure have. And I mean, and that's a classic, right? Mm. So making sure that everything um, that we create uh, is something I truly believe in and something that I believe has a, uh, a really strong vitality um, and will last the test of time. Lila B was picked up by Barney's within its first three months. When I read that, I nearly fell off my chair and it was picked up by Net-A-Porter within five months, meaning that it was available in something to the tune of 170 countries in less than a year. How did global expansion of that level and in that amount of time change the way that you were operating? Um, Well, I think the biggest challenge was volume Mm -hmm. and uh, product because, as I had mentioned, as a small brand, you're launching and you're trying to hit, you know, MOQs, minimum order quantities from your suppliers. So you're trying to run the the smallest amount of product because you don't necessarily have this kind of distribution or volume just yet. Um, But, you know, partnering with someone like Netta Porte that we have the opportunity, obviously, to have a greater reach and they make it easy for us in so many different markets um, was, was challenging from an inventory perspective. And we also hadn't had at that point a true read of what our heroes were going to be. So, you know, the, the, uh, the supply chain was very challenging, um, but it was fantastic. And, and what has happened with Net-A-Porte in particular is you, you also get to find out where the brand is resonating, mm. who's really gravitating towards clean, who's gravitating towards a luxury clean brand that performs like a true luxe um, color cosmetics line. Um, and that, that, that really was very interesting to see. Um, it obviously has helped me to make other decisions based on who we partner with and what markets we'd like to expand into internationally um, in a bigger way. This leads me into my next question because you're now stocked here in Australia through Mecca as well as all over the world in big retailers like Sephora, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom. What are some of the big differences that you have seen between the ways that women from different regions are approaching beauty? Um, It's interesting. When we first launched the brand in 2015, we saw, uh, particularly with Net-A-Porter, the strong uh, reaction um, 
in the EU. So really the European uh, beauty consumer that was craving that simple, chic, sophisticated routine. Um, and they were very mindful about, about ingredients. Obviously in the EU, much more strict, much more mm. stringent on ingredients uh, and what is banned and what is not. So really gravitating towards this luxe product um, manufactured in Italy. So we initially saw that market was definitely... Um, a key market for us. And then in the States, um, clean was really starting to build momentum. You know, originally it was organic natural brands and consumers were always questioning whether or not they would find performance or pigments or would the product last. Um, and there really wasn't anything that was locks. So for that consumer in the States or anywhere, uh, for that matter, who wanted to convert from sort of that traditional conventional color brand, um, Lux prestige brand that they've loved their entire life. Who do they, who do they transition over to? So that was very interesting to see, um, that, that evolution and, and that behavior. And then I think what has happened, I mean, you see it there in Australia is that it's, you know, women are much more mindful. Mm. They're really, they're much more mindful about um, what they're buying, what they're putting in their mouths, on their body, on their face. And um, so as each market really embraces the evolution of, you know, clean, conscious beauty, um, uh, we're seeing which markets uh, the brand is resonating even more and more in. Um, so it's been, it's been really interesting. Mecca has, has right out of the gate been a tremendous partner. Um, and uh, yeah, we already have a lot of Lila B fans there in Australia and New Zealand. So it's exciting. Myself included. You have been at the helm of a beauty brand for upwards of five years now and have been really a part of the beauty industry for more than 15. Over that time, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Um, great and interesting question. Um, I would say over the period of 15 years, the most profound change or changes that I've seen is the, um, the importance of, uh, transparency, mm-hmm. um, you know, really the demand from consumers, um, more so than ever. I don't think that anyone really ever would question a beauty brand. Why are you launching something? What's in it? Um, more so than today. Um, so I think that first and foremost, um, uh, relevance, what, 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 why are you a relevant brand? Why, you know, are you, what, what do you stand for? Um, I also see that an authentic, genuine, uh, brand, um, whether it has to do with your story, uh, your products, or even who the founder is that represents the brand. Um, uh, the desire for authenticity uh, is bigger and, and bolder now uh, more than ever before. I also think that the popularity of indie brands mm. has been just incredible, right? One. For Whether it's skincare or color cosmetics, um, fragrance also has, you know, that really um, big indie popularity and uh think about it i mean it was always the bigger brands the 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 names you heard about everywhere um particularly globally and uh and now people are very intrigued by indie brands that have a true personality and a true point of view um that they can really understand and, and get to know intimately um and I think that's probably the biggest uh, in terms of the evolution and the changes I've seen over the past 15 years. And what are some of the changes that you think we can expect to see over the next few years? I think it's, um, I think we'll continue to see the demand for transparency, um, more uh, focus on healthier ingredients, um, by way of color cosmetics, I think you're going to see a lot of, of uh, color brands really marrying color cosmetics with, with skin beneficial ingredients. Um, 
they can't be empty products anymore. Consumers, you can't get away with that uh, anymore. So I think um, you'll continue to see a lot of sort of that hybrid um, launching, uh, particularly in the color cosmetics category. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, a simpler, um, healthier routine is uh, is is what the next five to ten years is uh, is going to probably resonate the most. Um, I can't imagine that it's going to go back to um, what it was pre-clean um, because I think today is this is clearly the new norm. I completely agree with that, Cheryl. My final question: What is next for Lila B? <sighs> Oh, gosh. Um, We have a lot of things cooking. Uh, Obviously, um, the moment in time that we are in has sort of (laughs) put some uh, delays in things, but uh, we have a lot of fun things happening um, for particularly for for next year, um, but even the back half of this year. Um, You know, we launched as a as a clean color brand. Um, focusing on color cosmetics and really helping you to achieve that beautiful look with 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 your makeup or your color cosmetics. Um, but uh, earlier this year, we launched skin prep products, uh, our Aglow skin prep products, which really move more into the treatment realm, uh, prepping your skin because obviously your makeup is only going to look as good as your skin mm. does. Um, and as wonderful and beautiful as your, your base is. Um, and that has been a game changer for us. I think the timing, everyone is stuck at home and they're loving our skin prep products. Yeah. But I also think that it's once again, bringing things back to basics. Our skin prep is a trio um, of three products. And uh, once again, three is all you need. So um, we'll continue to expand uh, there because it's it's working and women are loving it. Um, it's definitely a category that I was extremely excited about. I was nervous because I wasn't really sure. Um, we launched as a clean, clean color brand and I wasn't really sure how um, how well they uh, the, the response would be, but it's been pretty incredible. So we'll see expansion more um, in that category and uh, and focusing not just on, on pigmented products, but also on making sure we're taking care of our overall beauty routine. That was Cheryl Unotti Folland, founder of Lila B, which you can find on Instagram at Lila Beauty. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.